welcome. Round two, you're here for round two? All right. Settle in. Got a little bit of rough sledding to do today because anytime you're going to talk about mourning, somehow we got to get through it. But that song that we just sang is a perfect uh, approach to have when it comes to mourning. So last week we had a great foundation that Pastor Steve laid uh, for this series that he started on the Beatitudes. And we're going to be learning over the next several weeks how the believer is blessed when responding in obedience to the King who called us to a life of abundance as subjects in his kingdom. Not material abundance, but abundance when it comes to joy and strength in the life of being one of his. In John 10.10, Christ said, I came that they, that's us, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we'll also be hearing the term happy many times over the next several weeks. That word for blessed. One who is truly poor in spirit is one who is truly blessed. And the only kind of person who truly possesses Christ's definition of what a genuine blessed relationship with him looks like is the one who possesses the character internally because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. In this introduction to the sermon of all sermons that Christ preached in Matthew 5 is applicable to us today. It's not a, that was for them then and not for us now kind of thing. Equally, it is as important today and applicable for us in the church. These beatitudes have to do with the condition of our spiritual lives. They have to do with getting a clean bill of health, so to speak, from our Heavenly Father. And there's not a small amount of joyfulness experienced in our relationship with Him when we are following His leading in the pursuit of holiness. And while the sermon of the title of the sermon today seems a bit paradoxical, it's because it is. It's the context of all of the Beatitudes. So let's read quick. Uh, here, Matthew, we're just going to read the first 12 verses together. Well, I'm going to read it and you're going to listen. But if you want to share, you can. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets." Who were before you. And all these beatitudes are markers, they're characteristics 
of a follower of Christ. They're evidence of what every Christian is to resemble in a lost and dark world. And we're supposed to exemplify all of them. We're not supposed to just grab one of them and focus on one or claim one and say, well, I can't really do this one very well, but I'm really good at this one over here. That's not how it works. These are all indicators of what the character of a follower of Christ should be. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Considering other scriptures, there are implications of what this mourning includes. More simply said, it's not just mourning in general, keeping ourselves sad all the time. But we have to remember, and I need you to remember this the whole time while we're talking this morning. The overarching theme of today is happiness. But spiritual happiness, it's blessedness. Spiritual in a sense. Spiritual happiness is a characteristic of a believer who grasps how we are to live with our pre-existing condition of sin with eternity in mind. It's not necessarily an outward, jovial, charismatic demonstration of joy. And that's appropriate at times also. But it is a condition, a characteristic of a believer who grasps how we are to live with that condition. Remember when you used to have to fill out a questionnaire to get your health insurance and they ask you about pre-existing conditions? You'd get that questionnaire and you're looking at that going, is there anything this insurance company covers? (laughs) Have you ever smoked or seen someone who smoked? (laughs) You're not covered. Have you ever been pregnant or had a mother who was? (laughs) Nope. Sorry, we can't cover that. But praise God, our king's plan does not deny us coverage because of our pre-existing condition. Amen? Amen. There's not anything that's even in our DNA that he is not able to cover the charges on our account. And I wanted to look, first of all, of what the world's perception of mourning is. Because the world would find the phrase, happy are those who mourn, utterly ridiculous. That would make no sense to someone in the world. And we talked last week about the pursuit of happiness mentioned in the founding documents of our country. country. But that pursuit is not confined to our shores. The whole world has been and always will be on a quest for happiness. Worldly happiness is characterized by one who is only concerned with things that are temporary. And the measures that people in the world take in that pursuit are sad to see at times because their version of happiness is temporal. It does not translate into eternity. People avoid mourning at all costs. No one wants to spend time there. Most of us would like to just stick our heads in the proverbial sand find a way to breathe while we're in that position, and then just tell someone to get a hold of us when it's all over. Let me know when it's done. I don't want to have to deal with this right now. And there are things that mankind commonly grieves or mourns over, things that are normal and are justified to be sad about. An appropriate demonstration of sorrow, just like appropriate demonstration of joy at times, is justified. And to be clear, reasons for mourning in the physical sense falls on the just 
and the unjust. No one is immune from it. Things like financial ruin, loss of a home, the loss of a job, hurt feelings, loss of a friendship, and loss of a loved one. Christ was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled when he mourned the loss of Lazarus. And over the last few months, we here at Hayden Bible Church, we've been experiencing a lot of that lately. Many of us in this room here today have had much to grieve over recently, and yet there's been much to celebrate when one of his gets to go home. There are things that people mourn over also that are self-inflicted, consequences that are brought on by their own sinful endeavors rooted in self-centeredness. And as I said before, mourning is not something we naturally want to have anything to do with. And if it is experienced and not dealt with, it can debilitate a person, especially if it's grounded in shame or regret. It can go too far, rendering a person completely inoperable and they can't function. And why is it so hard for us to face inevitable things in life that point to the point we just want to distract ourselves and forget about things? It's because it involves pain. And the world looks to relieve that discomfort through means outside the influence of Christ, searching for comfort in anything other than surrendering to him. And if no one has hope, no desire to reconcile that gap in their inner man, refusing to recognize God for who he is, since he has made it plain to them through his very creation of the world, one living without hope in this world, they want nothing to do with mourning. And just as a side note, there is no such thing as an atheist. Romans 1 explains that very clearly. It explains that man may go out of their way to deny the existence of God with their mouth, but they cannot deny him out of existence in their mind. We are all pre-wired with that within us. But man, through his unrighteousness, suppresses that fact, but it does not change the truth. It's not one of those, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Someone faced with a tragedy or a life-changing event, someone with a godless worldview is highly annoyed by mourning because they have to admit someone bigger than they are is in control. Now, why am I making such obvious, simple observations of the things we grieve or mourn over? It's because a distinction needs to be made. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The world grieves over circumstances and events that impact their lives in a negative way. The believer grieves over circumstances and events that impact them in a negative way. But they also grieve about sin. And the world can't relate to that. We grieve over the sin of friends and family. We grieve over the sin of our country, even to the point of getting angry. We mourn over our own sin, the outward sin that affects our surroundings in actions and in deeds. But we also mourn over inward sin, 
the sins of the heart and the mind, the inner man, evident in wrong attitudes and our thought life, making judgments about others and thinking of only ourselves. We think we, we grieve and we contemplate sin also of believers and non-believers alike. That can even bring sorrow to us. We're grieved when our relatives, our own children, compromise and are caught up in a lifestyle of sin. I'm sure that is a lot of people that have had that here. I remember instructing our children when they were young, trying to instill in them the heart of God, modeling what a holy God desires from those who are his, trying to strike that balance, not just pointing to the side related to the sin part, but also the comforting side, how to develop a healthy attitude toward God in their very being when we know that sin is in their core. Just watch the reaction of a toddler in his high chair when he's run out of lucky charms. (laughs) If you don't have that second helping of lucky charms ready to go, they throw a fit. Have you noticed there are a lot of kids around here right now? Our body here at Hayden Bible Church continues to grow with with young families and kids. And for the young parents here, just so you know, being a parent is hard. I don't need to tell you that. If you want to train your children up in the way they should go in a world that seems to be increasingly antagonistic toward the King of Kings... Well, let me tell you, you aren't ever going to look back and say, man, I wish we would have taught them a lot less and just let them figure things out on their own. You're not going to say that. Maybe you don't have children, but you may be an aunt or an uncle. We all have a role to play in this thing we call the family of God. Stay the course and remain faithful to the Lord. Commit yourself and, him, and commit your kids to the Lord. And he'll work it out in the end, all to his glory. Another prevalent thing that seems to be happening more and more is parents grieve when their children walk away from the faith. This is quite common. And I know it's nothing new. Perhaps some in this room find themselves in this very situation right now. And the best we can do for them is pray for a return to the truth. That's the best thing we can do for those kids. Or possibly, those kids that we say walked away from the faith, maybe they need to come to true repentance and faith for the first time. So, sin, we've got that, we've got that dialed in here, but transgression and iniquity are two other terms that we hear commonly in the scriptures and If we had time, and we don't, they have different implications when they're used in their respective contexts within Scripture. But there are covert sins, ones that are done in secret, not many will know about. This includes the things we may be the only one that knows about it, because they take place in our mind, they take place in our heart. There are overt sins blatant and obvious to yourself and others that's done out in the open. There are sins of commission when we do something God forbids. 
And there are sins of omission when we fail to follow through with something God has commanded. The bottom line is God is fully aware of all of it because it is in our nature. Are there different levels of sin? Is one worse than the other? Are some sins more serious than others? Does God view all sin the same in terms of its consequences? I don't have all the answers to this right now. But I do know this. All sin is not equal in relation to ourselves and others. But all sin before God deserves and demands eternal punishment. That is why we need a Savior. And God wants reconciliation. Our only hope is that we are united to Christ in saving faith and declared justified in him. For fallen creatures like us to stand before God, we need Christ's perfect righteousness by grace through faith imputed to us and all our sin, completely paid for by his substitutionary death. So what are some elements of what God-centered mourning looks like? And there there may be more, but today we're just going to look at three. First, sin is committed. Whether it is inward or outward, it has happened. I can't take it back. There's no need to explain further. Second, contrition takes place. I'm busted. I got to take care of this. This is where confession, repentance, and mourning all take place. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then thirdly, comfort comes, resulting in happiness of the blessed kind. Happiness of the heart because there is a burden lifted. There's a restoration of joy. So we have sin that's committed, a contrite heart, and comfort through forgiveness because of obedience. And you're probably thinking right now, because I've thought it before, we sure seem to be obsessed with this sin thing around here all the time. You're always talking about it. We talked about it in communion, we sang about it in the songs, and now you get up here and you're talking about it some more. And it would be nice to come here and get some encouragement once in a while, right? But today I hope you hear encouragement from the Word even though we're talking about mourning, spiritual mourning. Paul expressed in Romans 7 the ongoing struggle he had, and we still fight that today. And how did he comfort the church in Rome? Romans 27, 24 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I look so forward to the day when we don't have to worry about sin anymore. Amen? Even though we know it's been paid for, and we know we've been forgiven, this morning in chapter 5 we are talking about won't be part of the spiritual equation anymore once Christ returns. But until then... We've been given the instruction of our Lord in this very verse we're talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And as I was meditating on Matthew 5 this past week, Job came to my mind. He had much to mourn over. Obviously because of his physical circumstances, but we also find that he had an underlying heart condition, just like we do, that God would use to bring glory to himself. And so at first blush, you ask yourself, why do you bring Job into this? After all, the very first verse of Job chapter 1 says he was a righteous and blameless man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But the reason Job is a great example of someone who mourned about sin is because he not only is confronted with his own sin later on in the book, but he also grieved over the sin of those around him, specifically his family. Look at the verse in chapter 5, in verse 5 of chapter 1, and it says, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This was his practice prior to any of the suffering inflicted on him. He was aware of sin that so easily entangles, and he took it seriously. His circumstances we're on a scale that we can't relate to, his physical circumstances. And I can't begin to extract anything more than a morsel of all that was going on in the book of Job, all the different themes, things to extract from that. But I would submit to you that Job, given all his suffering and loss, was a blessed, happy man before and after his suffering. Not necessarily a jovial person, like I mentioned before, not because his material possessions have been restored, but because he had proper perspective of himself between he and God after his suffering. He never cursed God. He didn't end up bitter and angry. He pursued holiness. And that's what we're supposed to do too as believers He had comfort in his relationship with the Lord through the response of obedience when he was confronted with sin. So I'll just go over some of the cliff notes quickly here that uh, in the book of Job. Kind of paraphrasing, I'm telling you a story here. But one day some angels, the sons of God is what the scriptures refer to them as, they came to present themselves to the Lord and Satan came along with them. And the Lord brought Job to Satan's attention I know a lot of times we think that um, Satan came and asked God for Job, but in this context, in Scripture, it says the Lord considered, asked Satan to consider his servant Job, for he is blameless and upright. And you know the story. Satan says that Job fears God. He refears him only because of all of his material possessions. Because the Lord has given Job everything, he has and protects him, not allowing Satan to get at him. So the Lord removes the defense shield, allowing Satan to take his best shot at him, to get him to curse God. His 500 yoke of oxen, his 500 female donkeys, and all the servants in charge of those animals were all taken by the edge of the sword. And then fire comes 
The scripture calls it fire from God. Burned up all 7,000 of his sheep and all of the servants and people that cared for them. Next, three groups of Chaldeans come in and took out all 3,000 of his camels along with all of the attendants for those animals by the edge of the sword. And then for the grand finale, all 10 of his children, seven sons and three daughters, were eating and drinking at the oldest brother's house when a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and took all of them out as it collapsed. How did Job respond? Job 1, 20 through 22 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Wow. Incredible grief over his circumstances he was going through, but certainly not common circumstances. Is there any of us here who would remain faithful if even one of those things happened to us? So now Satan wants to turn up the pressure after the Lord brings up Job a second time in a similar conversation. Consider my servant Job. And the Lord reminds him that Job, even after inciting him, to destroy Job without reason. After all that has happened to Job so far, he still holds fast his integrity. With the only condition that Job's life be spared, the Lord allowed Satan to strike Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And what was Job's response? Even when his wife was telling him, him to curse God and die, his response was just a little bit different. It says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Not yet, anyway. But it did reveal a crack in the armor. And there may have been inner sinful sinful attitudes that were developing already. But how would they not? Job will now be subjected to a long list of false accusations from his three friends. The scripture says those three friends were recruited by Satan to attempt to get him to curse God. They assumed Job is suffering for some hidden sin. They knew, Job knew that he hadn't committed a sin that was worthy of such punishment, but he begins to question if that is the case or not. And again, who wouldn't? Along the way, Job says some ill-advised things to God, complaining pleading his case to God, demanding answers from him for his circumstances, questioning God's judgment and justice. And when we fast forward, finally in chapter 38, after the Lord has listened to silence, listened in silence to all of the exchanges between Job and his friends, God begins his answer. And God didn't answer Job because Job was demanding it, but it was time for Job to hear it. The Lord answers Job with a question. It says, And the Lord said to Job, And shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. 
And the next verses say, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. It's like Job is like, ah, okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. I'll shut up. He's now realizing that the sin that inhabits him and how it came out in his words. Contrition, that broken heart is setting in. But the repentance hasn't happened yet. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Now the underlying pride involved when he was questioning God's judgment and justice is revealed. We all think we have a pretty good idea of what justice is, don't we? But we don't, because our perception is based on our ideas, our finite wisdom, not on God's. And even though we have the whole counsel of God in our hands, right here, have it all. We've been given all the warnings, we've read about all the people in Scripture that fell into the pitfalls of life, stumbled and tripped. We still have to insert our finite wisdom into things when we, th- when we contemplate things as we navigate through life and interact with other people. But we need to leave that up to God because he will make everything right. So now Job's eyes are opened. He decides it's safe to open his mouth again, but there is good reason to now. Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And we know how this ends. Do you see the result of the joy of Job's salvation being restored in that? Because he acted in obedience to own up to his own sin. All of Jacob's fortune is restored. He forgave his family and friends who wouldn't have anything to do with him while he was in his suffering. And they showed him sympathy and they comforted him. And then even we would say, that's a little too little too late right there. For all the evil that the Lord brought upon him. And it says, The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. All of his herds were restored twofold. He was blessed with ten more children. After all this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Obedience in acknowledging sin doesn't result in good fortune, but it does result in spiritual blessing. Another person that came to my mind while I was 
contemplating and meditating on Scripture this week was the life of Daniel. And you read Psalm 51, which he wrote. That's the great example of someone who goes through the process of committing sin and then going through contrition, arriving at confession and getting comfort ultimately from that. But I'm just going to go to 2 Samuel and not read necessarily from the scripture. I'll just tell you the story. I'm just going to get to the gritty part without giving you all the small details. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David, still in Jerusalem, he sent everyone else out to battle while he stays in Jerusalem. And it's late in the day, so when he gets up from lying on his couch, he notices Bathsheba on the roof next door bathing. And one of his servants recognizes her as Uriah's wife. And David, knowing that Uriah was out to battle, he sees opportunity knocking. So he acted on temptation and ordered his messengers to bring her to him. They committed adultery. And she went home. All is okay so far. Nobody knows. But in that act of sin, conception took place. And things get dicey for David now. Because he's in full damage control. So David sends word to one of his commanders, Joab, to bring Uriah off the battlefield. Send him back to Jerusalem. Verse 7 of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel says, When Uriah came home, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He just, well, I'm just going to make some small talk. I'm going to make him think that absolutely nothing is going on. I'll make him feel special and I'll give him permission to go home for the night. I'll even strongly suggest that he makes a reconnection with his wife. Assuming anyone given the opportunity would capitalize on that. But that didn't work because Uriah was a committed soldier. He was true to the statutes and laws of abstinence while being engaged in battle. So he refused to obey David, and he refused to sin. And if you want to take that, inch that out a little bit, what was Uriah's reward for being faithful? But anyways... David decides to give him a couple more days off since my, the first night didn't work. I'll make him feel even more special. I'm going to invite him over to my house to have dinner and drink with me. The drinking part of the strategy was a success. He did actually get Uriah drunk. But he didn't make it down to his house that night and into his own bed that night either. David's plot was not coming together as easily as he thought it would. Because of Uriah's disobedience to David and faithfulness to strict military orders, David had to crank up the heat and take care of things once and for all. David thought, I'll order him to be sent to the front lines. He'll die in battle. And that is precisely what happened. Only Joab and I will know about this. In verse 25 of chapter 11, David sends a messenger to his accomplice, who's still out on the battlefield, just to lessen the potential guilt that he might be feeling for helping him out. He's the one that sent him back to Jerusalem. He told his military commander, he says, you don't need to worry about this matter. Some people just don't make it home off the battlefield. 
So keep on fighting and be encouraged. David gave it some time. He allowed the prescribed time of mourning for Bathsheba over the loss of her husband to be over. He then took her as his wife. A son was born. All is fixed. No remorse, no conviction or contrition, no grief or sorrow. But I can say with confidence that David had no comfort in that situation. David thought he was doing pretty well until 2 Samuel chapter 12 rolled, up, rolled in. In comes Nathan being sent by the Lord. And do you remember how David was confronted with his sin? The Lord sent Nathan to David to share a parable with him. A parable of a rich man who took a poor man's only ewe lamb. It was basically a family, family member. It was like a daughter. The rich man took the ewe lamb from the poor man to feed his guests because he didn't want to have to use any of his own herd. So David gets all upset after hearing this story. He's infuriated. infuriated. I can't, why did I even try to say that word? <laughs> that was bad. Anyways, whoever the man is who did this deserves to die and reimburse the poor man fourfold because he had no pity. And what was Nathan's response? You are the man. David is undone. And then explained, and Nathan went on to explain the brevity of all the ways David had done evil and despised the word of the Lord. The Lord used Nathan to explain to David that what he had done in secret would result in consequences seen very publicly before the nation of Israel, a ripple effect he could not imagine. David's reaction in verse 13 of that chapter, he just said, I've simply, he said simply, I've sinned against the Lord. But Psalm 51 expresses the whole process of being confronted, which leads to contrition, mourning his sin against God, followed by confession. And this is where the comfort comes in. Psalm 51, 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And keep on reading. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And like David... The joy of our salvation is what happens when we follow through with obedience in our response to sin. That's where the comfort comes in. And there is a danger in comparing Job and David because we might not be able to really relate to either one of them, or so we think. In David's case, we think, after all, he was an adulterer and he was a murderer just for starters, and God forgave him for that, so certainly God's going to forgive me for the things I do. I've never done anything even remotely close to what he did. And doesn't God grade on the curve anyways? And trying to relate to Job is hard also. He was put through things that I'll never face, and the sin he dealt with was talking back to God. He had a pride issue that I'll never have. Ouch, right? 
So how do we button this whole thing up? How do we send you away with some encouragement today? How do we define this person who mourns according to Matthew chapter 5? It is a person who is remorseful, but not miserable. And there isn't any need to use superficial happiness or sadness to manipulate the opinions of those around us. It's the one who is blessed because of the ongoing perpetual obedience to God. And how is this life experienced? Due to the things we know we are supposed to be doing. We need to do the things we know we're supposed to be doing. Reading the Word of God. And not just reading it, but studying it and meditating on it. Be open and transparent with the Holy Spirit, asking Him to reveal any sin in our lives through constant prayer. I pray often, verses 10 through 12, in that passage we just read in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You can pray that daily, not as a ritual, but you can pray that from the heart and mean it. Ask the Lord to open our eyes to the fullest extent possible. Psalm 139, 23-24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Isaiah 2.12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Pray for the Holy Spirit to sharpen our awareness, to sharpen our conscience. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Paul said they took every thought captive in order to obey Christ. And I'll leave this last verse with you to close. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17 says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you do come to give us aid when we've been through trials and temptations, been faced with sin. You provided a way out for us. We're thankful for that. Help us to be even more cognizant of the things that are going on, not only the things around us that cause us to not have good relationship with you, but point out the things that are going on in our own mind, Lord. But we're thankful for the comfort that you provide in all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.